Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Sounds like an HSR strike is happening. We're also talking about carbon price carve-outs, our perception of restaurants, Royal Canadian Legion memberships, Hamilton's ever-expanding studio district, and economic development and experiential learning. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it sounds like we need a miracle. It sounds like we need a Hail Mary touchdown pass for there not to be an HSR strike in this community. Negotiations have been happening for weeks, if not months, and they still don't have a deal. And tomorrow is the strike deadline. At this time tomorrow, buses could be sitting idle in this community because bargaining between the city and the transit workers derailed. Here to give us an update is Eric Tuck, the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107. Eric, good morning. Thanks for coming back on the show. Good morning, Rick. It's always a pleasure. So it sounds like it didn't go well yesterday with the, the what we thought was the final round of negotiations. No, yesterday actually was just a complete waste of taxpayers' money. Uh, as you know, the employer called us, asked us back to the table. Uh, we went there in earnest, hoping to try and negotiate and uh, resolve the impasse. Uh, we started the day uh, waiting for about two hours, and then the employer uh, called us out into the hall and presented us with a strike protocol asking us to sign that. And uh, uh, we, we told them categorically that we would not sign a strike protocol and that we were there to bargain. And we asked them point blank if they had anything to improve their offer, uh, an offer, a final offer that uh, my members had rejected by 94%. And the employer said no, that there was uh, absolutely nothing more to offer. And uh, we basically said then that we're wasting everybody's time. Why are we here? So uh, so we, we ended the day and went home. In terms of the strike protocol, this would determine where you could or could not uh, you know, present yourself in terms of picket lines and, and announce that you're on strike, correct? Correct. Correct. Uh, we, we have never signed a strike protocol in all the years that I've been uh, involved in the negotiations. Um, you know, we, uh, we respect certain, certain things, such as emergency services and stuff. We never, never pick at them. We, we pick it where it's vital to our services. Uh, where we normally would provide services, uh, that's where we would be picketing and targeting. So if no deal is done today and you're in fact on strike tomorrow, are we anticipating picket lines where in the community? So obviously at the Mountain Transit Center would be a a place that we would be picketing. Uh, The GO station downtown, we have workers that uh, normally work in there. City Hall, who is our employer, obviously would be a target, Uh, as well as anywhere else where we have transit terminals, such as uh, malls. We may set up some... some, uh, information pickets at the the major malls, Um, the uh, Amazon Center, where we have transit centers in there. Uh, There's lots of places that that, uh, may be affected by this. Eric Tuck is the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with an update on the negotiations, or really lack thereof, between uh, ATU Local 107 and the city of Hamilton. They have certainly been derailed. And when you began negotiations months ago, did you anticipate this happening? No, no, of course not, Rick. Listen, we always go into negotiations with the hope of getting a deal. Um, I, I personally have been involved in about six uh, rounds of bargaining, uh, and we've been successful every time. Unfortunately, this time we're not. Um, and I think the big, the big kicker here is the, uh, the huge increase that was given to the um, 1,100 non-union staff. Uh, as you know, the, many of them were given double-digit uh, raises this year. 
they're all earning between 120 and 160 thousand dollars a year, and they were given, you know, in some cases, 10, 12, 14 percent increase overnight, meaning a 12,000 to 16 thousand dollar raise overnight. Uh, and many of them are working from home. Uh, certainly, we don't have that luxury of working up, uh, from home. The average. Uh, you know, the average uh, transit worker doesn't put in a straight eight-hour day. Many of us put in 12 uh, to 14-hour days because we have split runs, uh, and we only get paid for, you know, eight to ten of those hours. So it's a much different environment. We're not working in a, an office setting or in a home setting. Many of them that are working from home, we don't have that luxury. Much different uh, working conditions, and we expect as frontline workers who work throughout the pandemic to be treated fairly. Uh, you know, we're asking for a 5% increase uh, on average across the uh, four years. Yeah, the city countering with 3%, and I think the, the first year was three and a quarter, which is uh, there's a big disparity there. With that, and I mentioned, you know, a last-minute Hail Mary kind of pass, are there any more negotiations planned uh, to, to prevent this strike? So there's absolutely nothing scheduled. Uh, we remain ready to go back to the table at any time, as long as those talks are going to be productive. You know, uh, there's no sense calling us back to the table to discuss strike protocols or things like that. If you want to be serious and you want to put a serious offer, you want to move off the mark from where you are, we're prepared to make some moves uh, on our end. But negotiations takes two willing partners. And right now, we're the only ones willing to negotiate. How long do you plan to be off the job? How long do you think you're going to be off the job? So we never plan to be off the job at all. Unfortunately, we're being forced into this situation. And I can tell you by the resolve of my membership, we'll be there as long as it takes. Obviously, there's going to be a huge impact in the community for people getting to work. We know the Grey Cup is next week, Grey Cup week. The HSR is going to be counted upon, at least that was the plan, to take people to and fro. Uh, and obviously your members are steadfast in saying that, you know, we we need a fair deal. Absolutely. Fair is fair. Uh, you know, I got my members are even getting more angry because you've got, uh, you know, the head of human resources, Laura Fontana, on the news saying uh, how we're basically greedy because we're asking for a raise that, you know, a 5% raise on a $71,000 salary is about $3,000 a year. Laura Fontana, over the last four years, she earns $212,000. Over the last four years, her increases amount to $19,000. And yet she's on the news calling us greedy? Come on, let's be fair here. Eric, always appreciate the time. Good luck uh, with the, uh, whenever they happen, the latest round of negotiations. Absolutely. Thank you, Rick. Eric Tuck is the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107. As you hear, they're deadlocked. City offering 3%, three and a quarter in year number one, and the union countering with five. That four percentage figure looks like a pretty juicy number to me. Not sure if either side is willing to get to that number, though. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's go to Parliament Hill because, well, there's a lot of, there's always something happening on Parliament Hill, but this week especially was something very intriguing, and that is. A carbon price. You've been hearing a lot about carbon price, carbon tax, and there are calls from Canada's premiers and many Canadians, for that matter, to remove the carbon price from all home heating fuel. He's now signed on with the separatists to divide Canadians into two separate classes. Those who will have to pay carbon tax on their home heat and a small minority who will get a pause 
from the pain. And as Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev, the federal government's announcing recently that those who heat their homes with heating fuel, heating oil, would be given a break. And while well, everyone else is thinking, well, what about us? Uh, including Mr. Poiliev and some of the other party leaders like Jagmeet Singh with the NDP. Mackenzie Gray is our national reporter with Global News and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHL. Mr. Gray, good morning. How are you? Hi, Rick. What's going on? Is this carbon price, carbon tax, is this a wedge issue or a bigger wedge issue now than, than it ever has been before? Well, uh, Mr. True brought this on himself when he decided to basically bow to the pressure from his own Atlantic MPs and do this carve-out for home heating fuel. Uh, I think there were some major strategic errors from the Liberals in terms of how they sold this and their plan to handle it. Uh, but also, you know, fairness is a core component of Canadian life and Canadian politics. Uh, and it's a slam dunk for Mr. Polyev, whose central message for the last year has been that he wants to get rid of the carbon tax. When you make a carve out a few days after your environment minister basically laughed off any ideas that there would be carve outs, it gives plenty of fuel to the opposition in terms of whether or not there should be uh, a, not only a pause, but whether or not there should be a carbon tax going forward. And when you look at the political position that Mr. Trudeau is in, uh, it might be coming down to the point as to you keep the carbon tax and you lose the election, uh, or you get rid of the carbon tax and you give a puncher's chance to be able to win the election and be able to implement some kind of other environmental plan. Because Mr. Polyev, his only plan on the environment right now that he's willing to say is that he'll get rid of the carbon tax. He wouldn't say if he'd keep any kind of similar price on carbon for large emitters, whether he'd meet the 2030 or attempt to meet the 2030 Paris targets, uh, and said there wouldn't be any environmental plan from the Conservatives until the election comes, whenever that may be. So uh, there certainly are some questions on all sides of the House of Commons on what to do about the environment. Prime Minister has been really adamant that he is not going to, as you mentioned, offer any more other carve-outs when it comes to, let's say, the price of natural gas in, in terms of home heating fuel, and which is really, as according to Mr. Polyev and some other politicians, uh, creating a very divisive issue on a hot-button topic, which is basically the cost of living. And I can't see after, you know, Mr. Trudeau says, you know, we're, not gonna, we're absolutely not going to offer more carve-outs. I mean, he's, it doesn't sound like he's going to fall on his sword here. Well, the two points on that, Rick. Um, I do think it's a tad rich for Mr. Polyev to be complaining about division. Uh, the Conservatives literally spend every single day hammering the opposition party, the, well, the opposition parties, including the Bloc, the NDP, on this issue. This is the only thing to talk about. So uh, they share some of the uh, division portions of this, too, and in particular how they speak on this issue. Um, on the, the Liberal side, I mean, I, I don't know why anyone at this point in time, after seeing how the Liberals spoke about a potential carve-out for uh, home heating fuel with oil, saying we're not going to do it, and then saying we're going to end up doing it, uh, would think that there could not potentially be a carve-out coming forward. I have no idea whether there would be one, uh, but just because the Prime Minister says there there won't be one doesn't mean that he's actually going to follow through on that. First off, it's politics. People change their mind all the time. Mm -hmm. And secondly, on this specific issue, we saw the Liberals flip-flop on this. Uh, you know, their argument is that home heating fuel with oil is drastically more expensive, which it is, uh, and they have a plan in place to be able to get people off of it. 
the only problem with that logic is home heating oil is also wildly worse for the environment. And would you not want to then continue to disincentivize people to use home heating oil by making it prohibitively more expensive while also at the same time giving people options to be able to get off of that? That's the one thing from a, uh, you know, the logic of the carbon tax is to make it more expensive to use fossil fuels. Uh, and they've blown a fairly big hole in that on the most polluting uh, potential home heating fuel. So uh, that doesn't make much sense. No, not at all. And it's really led to a very interesting debate on Parliament Hill. And Mackenzie, I'm glad we had uh, some insight from you on this uh, hot topic. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Rick. Mackenzie Gray, national reporter with Global News, should mention as well that Canada's premiers, whether it's Ontario's Doug Ford or Daniel Smith in Alberta or all all the other cast of characters, except those in Atlantic Canada, are united in saying, hey, if you're going to offer this particular part of the equation, a, a discount or a rebate or a cut, uh, what about us? It, it, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, there's a new report out from Dalhousie University that shows Canadian restaurants are struggling to survive and that diners are turning away because of sky-high prices. And, well, the portion sizes aren't computing with those rising costs. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is the food professor, professor of food distribution and policy, and the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and joins us on GMH. Dr. Charlebois, good morning. Good morning. So you surveyed more than 5,000 Canadians on their thoughts on the food service industry. What did you find? Uh, some disturbing, uh, findings for sure. I mean, uh, first of all, we all know that menu prices have gone up and we wanted to know how Canadians are reacting to higher menu prices. Uh, we all know that many Canadians are trying to support restaurant operators as much as possible, but, um, now it seems as though a lot of people are leaving the restaurant not being satisfied. In fact, 29% of Canadians uh, I felt satisfied in the last 12 months, uh, and that's due to uh, noticing uh, things like shrinkflation, smaller portion sizes. Uh, people have actually noticed uh, that uh, the quality of the food has changed, the quality of the service also has changed. So uh, I think that the restaurant industry, the food service industry is facing some major challenges financially. I think we all know that, but uh, also the industry is uh, slowly training a crop of consumers that, you know, may decide to just dine home or dine out home instead of just going out to the restaurant, pay extra for alcohol, and 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 also uh, pay for for tips. And in fact, eight percent. What the survey found: eight percent of Canadians don't even dine out anymore. I mean, they've erased it from their, you know, uh, experience of you know eating eating out. They're they're ordering in more often than not. That's right. Yeah, I uh, actually I was expecting a higher number. To be honest, eight uh, percent is not too bad. It's actually similar to uh, pre-COVID numbers. To be mm-hmm. honest, I mean, a lot of people just don't go out at all. Uh, uh, I, I think there's there are two uh, fundamental uh, problems, I guess, um, that would need to be dealt with uh, by by the industry. One, 
obviously uh, the industry is really uh, is, is is facing uh, a challenge in, t- in terms of customer satisfaction. Clearly, uh, in Ontario, it's basically average. So the, the national average is twenty eight percent, twenty nine percent, and Ontario is at about twenty nine percent. The lowest in the country is Manitoba at fifteen. Can you imagine? Wow. That's very low. But the biggest challenge, I think, is is about uh, the kind of restaurants uh, we're we're going to be having in the future. Uh, there are fewer people going downtown uh, to work, uh, and that's affecting independent restaurants. Chains are doing very well. If you look at RBI numbers, if you look at McDonald's, uh, all of these chains are doing very well in a trading down in a trading down economy. They're doing well. It's the independents that are suffering. They're probably paying more for rent if they don't own uh, the building they're in. Uh, secondly, uh, they're they're paying more. Uh, they're paying their staff more. Uh, the cost of food has gone up as well. And so those there are a lot of things that are impacting uh, independent operators, which could actually lead to a larger proportion of chains versus independents. So is, could this potentially be the precursor to uh, the, the franchises or those those huge chains being the, the big dominating factor in the restaurant industry? Can, can, in five or ten years from now, we're going to see maybe just a handful of mom and pop operated restaurants. I, I, that's the biggest. Uh, I, th- I think that's the biggest challenge for us all. I mean, when you look at food innovation in the food service industry, most of the innovation has come from independence, you know, uh, especially uh, from people coming into our country. They've they've brought some lovely cuisines, new tastes, new flavors. Uh, Canadians. Um, uh, could have access to without traveling. And over the years, we've seen some great restaurants emerge uh, just because Canadians are curious. And um, chains don't necessarily do that. Mm-hmm. They, they tend to customize. Uh, they, they tend to uh, commoditize food, basically. They tend to uh, uh, focus on standards and consistency, which is nice if you want to know what to expect. But often... People just want to discover. They want to be surprised. They want to uh, live an adventure, a culinary adventure. And and that's really being compromised, I think, based on what we're seeing. Uh, you also looked into, you know, restaurants facing a critical juncture when it comes to the cost of labor, the labor shortage, uh, the high cost of rent, the ever-increasing cost of food. And with more than half of Canadian restaurants now losing money, which is a stark difference from pre-pandemic days, how does the industry react? Is there is there something the restaurant industry has to do to survive? I think it's more about independence. Uh, we can leave chains alone. They'll be fine. It's mm-hmm. just I think independents need help, uh, to be honest. Not all independents. I think a lot of people are listening to us and they're probably wondering, maybe we do have too many restaurants given <laughs> Given the economy we're in, uh, you know, we're recalibrating. We're normalizing our economy after after the pandemic, uh, and people are have adopted new uh, new habits, and uh, and some of those habits will keep people working from home. And so, it's quite normal to see uh, some changes and see restaurants close. Uh, however, of course, restaurants tend to uh, get people downtown. Uh, it's an attraction. And so you, we have to, I mean, I think cities like yours uh, will have to think hard about how do we empower restaurants and restaurateurs themselves. I think the big game is loyalty. 
if you can actually uh, offer, especially right now with the holidays coming, if you can actually partner with other independents, uh, offer deals, uh, gift certificates, uh, if you visit a few restaurants, for example, get people uh, involved uh, and, and become more loyal towards independence, I actually think that that could actually help, uh, especially over the next six to eight weeks. Because a lot of people organizing uh, holiday parties, mm -hmm. they got to be look at menu prices. Absolutely. And it's certainly not cheap. The food professor, Dr. Sylvain Chalabaugh. Appreciate the time as always. All right. Take care. Bye -bye. Dr. Chalabaugh is a professor of food distribution and policy and the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. A recent survey showing that 29% of Canadians are satisfied with their restaurant experience. That is a super low number. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. So as we draw closer to Remembrance Dates this Saturday, some Royal Canadian Legions are dealing with some membership issues. They're seeing a, a decrease in numbers, and, uh, well, some of them are running into a little bit of trouble. How our local regions are faring is a good question. When I read this story, I thought, well, how are we doing here? Shirley Beaton is the zone commander with the Mountain Legion Branch 163 and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Shirley, good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Good morning, Rick. Let's talk about membership at local legions. Are we doing okay? Well, we have found over the last few years that Membership has dropped at a lot of our legions, but um, we're hoping with campaigns like what's on right now that more people will join. So we keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> How can people join and what are some of the benefits? Uh, anyone can join. We are not an exclusive club anymore. Um, they, even if you don't have anyone in your family who was a member of uh, the armed forces, you can still join as an affiliate member. And there's always lots of things going on at every legion. Um, most of us have either uh, websites or Facebook pages, and it, it shows you what goes on every single night. And there's a lot of camaraderie as well, which is always good for Anybody who's looking to get out and do some stuff. One of the uh, most famous local legions is your local legion, the Mountain Legion branch. I know, and it's famous for the fish fry as well. Just one small example of, you know, the special events that you hold. Exactly. And that helps to raise funds every week. And uh, we are very lucky this year. Um, there's not a week that we have to miss because of holidays or whatever because of the way the holidays fall so we have fish fry every single friday um and from four to six thirty and that's just one of the things we always need volunteers to come and help work fish fry a couple of hours a week to be a volunteer doesn't mean that you have to put in a lot of time um you might only be able to work once a month for a couple of hours mm -hmm. but everything helps Absolutely. That goes a long way, and it's a great way to give back to the community. Shirley Breton is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Shirley is the zone commander at the Mountain Legion Branch 163. I know the poppy campaign is in full swing. How's it going? It is just wonderful this year. Um, I want to thank the people of Hamilton who have supported us, and please keep doing that. I was at a local grocery store uh, in the early days of November. I think it was the first or the second. I went to go get a poppy, and they were all they had already sold out. I know. I can't <laughs> believe it this year. 
We've had so many of our locations that hold boxes um, all through the city called to say, we've run out, we need more boxes. Wow, that is awesome. So do you have more boxes to give? Like, do you have just loads of this in storage? Um, we do. Usually we just refill the boxes that are there if they're not full of money. But a lot of times we do. But our legions over the years have accumulated a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of stash. So they, uh, you know, they just pull out extra boxes and take them around. Yeah, there won't be a shortage. What preparations are being made for this Saturday? Um, each of the legions, I'm sure, is holding a ceremony. Uh, if you wish to know... Um, you know, times and locations, because uh, depending on which legion you are, some of them are outside ceremonies, some are inside ceremonies, depending. Um, I know that Stony Creek, Dundas, and 58, which is Barton Street, their ceremonies are all held outside. Um, But if you contact them, I'm sure they will give you the times that you should be, you know, that you should be there. The Mountain Legion holds an inside service. We found that over the last, you know, over the years, um, the weather is not always the best. So we moved our ceremony inside. We will start, uh, the ceremony will start at 1030 there, you know, and go from there. It is going to be uh, another day in which we uh, honor our war veterans, uh, those who are still with us and those who are no longer with us. And it is uh, certainly a uh, a day in which we reflect and, and give thanks for all the sacrifices that they made. Shirley, I give you thanks for coming on the show once again and tell us about uh, what's happening with the Legion and the Poppy Campaign. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much. Shirley Beaton is the Zone Commander, Mountain Legion Branch 163. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Really cool story in, and and this city is just flooded with cool stories, and this is definitely one of them. It's the studio district in this town that is expanding and now includes a new arts hub. Aeon Studio Group and Center 3 have formed a partnership to rent out some studio space to more than two dozen local artists, and uh, they're certainly taking advantage of this situation. Jeff Anders is the co-founder of Aeon Studio Group and joins us on GMH. Jeff, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. So this community arts hub, I understand it's in the old Felton Brush Building on Harriet Street, uh, is now offering a pretty cool space to all these local artists. How did How did this come about? Uh, yeah, well, so I guess here's the here's the background. Uh, my partners and I in Aeon Studio Group um, are endeavoring to build a creative industries hub on the Barton Tiffany lands uh, in the West Harbor, right by the West Harbor Go Train Station. And in the pursuit of that, um, we opened up Hamilton's largest film and TV production studio across the street from the Barton Tiffany lands at Two Four Three Queen. Uh, and that's been operating now for two and a half years and has um, essentially was the first large scale studio uh, in the city and hosted the first ever American film production to base its studio uh, in the city of Hamilton. Uh, that was in the making of Firestarter. So that's so that's some of the context. Um, and then in addition to that, now more recently in the old Felton Brushes building, as you've said, we've teamed up with the amazing organization Center 3. And we've opened up this affordable art space uh, at 29 Harriet Street, um, which is also within you know a few minutes walk of the Barton Tiffany lands. And the idea is to convert that entire building into a place where 
artists of all crafts um, can come, have space to uh, to do their work and commercialize their work. Um, and it is an inspiring place to visit. Uh, this place for local artists, and as I mentioned, more than two dozen are already there. Is there room for more? There is. Um, and so you, you you spoke about the more than two dozen people who are renting space. And so they're renting um, a mix of either cl- enclosed studios um, and also open kind of desk space, if you will, or, or open studio space. Mm-hmm. But there's also drop-in space. Um, and so... It, it hosts it can host people in many different ways plus um, our proposal to uh, to the city um, which we can talk about I guess in a moment is um, is that we convert that entire building into a community art space right now only half the building is functioning in that way and our intention is to uh, double the size of it so what needs to happen for that to be a reality we're talking renovations we're talking funding from the city how is this going to work well I mean in terms of no it's no funding from the city in terms of uh, in terms of how that building would get converted, um, it's just it is yeah it's some renovation and equipping with um, well just uh, setting it up so that artists could operate there. It, it doesn't require a great deal, um, but it does require the financial wherewithal to be able to offer subsidized rent. And right now we're we're trying to do fifty um, percent below market rent, fifty percent what below what these artists could could uh, could rent elsewhere but I think the, the, the bigger the bigger ask of, of how that would have to happen is um, there is a uh, city hall staff report uh, that is coming to city council uh, this month that will uh, present the details of aeon's proposal um, and that's part of a consortium of companies including uh, the impact real estate developer TAS. Uh, we have made a proposal to the city to acquire the city's Barton Tiffany lands. Uh, this is something that we've been working on with the city for a number of years now. Uh, and the idea is to uh, get the final green light from council to proceed with the acquisition of these lands and to then build out this first of its kind future focused uh, media production hub uh, in Hamilton that would have space for film and TV production, uh, but also for stuff like video game development and special effects and virtual reality, sort of the future of of media production, and also music and textiles, fashion, uh, if you can think about sort of uh, wardrobe for, for film and TV, uh, and, as, and of course, the creative arts that we've been talking about. So if council votes yes uh, in November to proceed with this, uh, with this proposal, uh, then this building will be expanded uh, and turned into... Uh, well, the, the full vision of the creative arts, uh, affordable creative arts uh, building at, at 29 Harriet. Sounds very exciting. In our final 90 seconds together, what's the likelihood of that happening? Do you get, do you have a good sense that council is on board with this? Listen, that's, that's a question for council. <laughs> um, so I, I couldn't say, but I, I can say that I think we've, we've made a pretty compelling offer. Um, it, this has to be a partnership between Eon and the city. And uh, I think everybody has shown, including the city, especially the city, has shown that um, it is a, a an excited, enthusiastic, uh, willing partner. I think we've shown that we can bring the, the necessary capital to make all of this work. We have the vision. We have the expertise. Uh, I think everybody wants this to happen. And certainly we've done a thousand interviews with people across the city and, and Civic Plan has helped us do that. Unanimous, near unanimous support for this project across the city. So hoping that we can find a way to get it done. Fingers crossed. This would be a huge win for the city for sure. Jeff, really appreciate the time. Good luck with us.
Thank you. Jeff Anders is the co-founder of Aon Studio Group. You can find out all the details of their plans. And they're big and they're awesome. AonStudioGroup.com is the website to go to. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. All week this week, it is the IEC series, the Industry Education Council of Hamilton, which does amazing work in this community, connecting those in the education world, i.e. students, with those in the employment world. For example, the big pillars in our community, whether it's McMaster, Mohawk College, Arsenal DeFasco, Leuna, and the list goes on and on, including the city of Hamilton. Here's where we are today with a focus on economic development and experiential learning, that hands-on learning. Race Morgan, we welcome him back. He's the executive director of the Industry Education Council of Hamilton. And Jennifer Patterson is also with us. Jennifer is the manager of business investment and sector development with the city of Hamilton. Race and Jennifer, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. Jennifer, we'll start with you. Uh, the city of Hamilton's role in connecting students with a path to employment, um, how, how big of a role does the city have in doing this? I'm going to say, well, we just actually completed a workforce strategy uh, that included the Industry Education Council. And the, the fact that uh, pathways to employment is extremely, it's crucial in terms of our future workforce and how we connect them from the high school level right through to the post-secondary up through working in the community and our key sectors of our economy. From an economic development standpoint, Jennifer, I would assume there's a lot of opportunities because this city seems to be growing by the day. It is. And we're very blessed the fact that we are one, deemed one of the most diversified economies in the country. And we have uh, a number of key uh, sectors of our economy that are alive and well and thriving. And yes, our city is growing uh, uh, substantially. Reese, to have a partner at the municipal level, i.e. The, the city of Hamilton, must it must be a great resource for future employment opportunities and that experiential learning. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Jennifer is quite modest as far as that. The work that the uh, uh, economic development does really gives us an idea of what we're looking for for growth for the next so many years with the areas of, of you're talking about manufacturing and food and beverage and life sciences and aerospace, key indicators of things that pathways for students and areas where they're not necessarily aware of, although that there's programs that are taking place in high schools right now that'll lead them into it. But our key partnership with the city is just vital to helping students not only find employment within uh, in those areas, but retaining them within the city of Hamilton. You make a good point, Reese, because there's a lot of people, myself included, thinking, I never knew we could do this in the city. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, go on, Jen. Yeah, no, I was going to say, we have actually a dedicated staff that looks to um, retaining students, and in, in specifically international students that are coming into our city and getting them engaged. We do tours with students, uh, industry-focused tours, um, and helping them understand what the opportunities may be available to them um, when they graduate it. Because a, a key part of that workforce, our future workforce, is these students that are coming into Mohawk, Mac, Redeemer, all of our post-secondary edu- educational institutions. And we actually just did a, uh, a tour with some Mac students and um, from political sciences was their major. And, and some of these students who even live in the community had no idea the opportunities that may be available to them in this city. And so it's a real eye-opener for them. And it leads me to believe, and that's why this workforce strategy is so important, that we do need to do a better job of educating um, our students and those re- those that natural resource that we have in those students um, and retaining them and, and opening up those opportunities that may be available to them. So Industry Education Council is a big part um, of how we do that and start earlier because that was one of the feedback we got like why are we doing this now at the, po- the post-secondary level it should be starting at an earlier mm-hmm. um, 
time when they're in the secondary school system. Jennifer, you mentioned there's a specific focus on international students. Why is that? Just immigration. Immigration is a key part of it. And uh, one of actually, which is really unique to our office and our economic development office is that we have the Hamilton Immigration Partnership Council embedded within our team. So immigration is a key component. And um, again, another resource as part of our ecosystem that we look to um, support and get people into work. But international students is a big thing. Our post-secondary education students have a lot of kids coming into our community from different parts of the world. And so we do our best to support them and educate them on the opportunities that may be available here as well. Jennifer Patterson is the Manager of Business Investment and Sector Development with the City of Hamilton. And Reese Morgan is the Executive Director of the Industry Education Council of Hamilton. It's our IEC series this week, which we're profiling the IEC, which works with connecting educators and those in the education system with a path to employment. And today we're focusing on economic development and experiential learning. And, and, and Reese, back to you when it comes to that education component. And, you know, why didn't I hear about this earlier? And Jennifer mentioned wow. starting at even... Uh, before post-secondary education, uh, the IEC is working to, to get that into the school system a little earlier, right? Absolutely. I think Jennifer's point about the early, earlier, it's not so much like all of a sudden deciding on I'm going into this path when you get when you're getting even close to the end of high school. It's early grades. It's it's basically, I'm going to say K to 12, understanding things as far as what pathways are out there. That's where our, our projects that we undertake and our collaboration with our industry partners about, you know, having them as mentors, uh, offering job shadowing twinning work experience for the, some of the later grades. Co-op is really something as you're talking about towards the end of high school, but there's other programs that are already in place to help them prepare. High skills majors, specialist high school majors, Ontario Youth Apprenticeship programs, dual credits, all of these allow them to sort of be outside of the school environment and working closely not only with, with uh, employers, uh, industry representatives, but seeing the possibilities of, 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 of uh, careers that are out there that they might not even be aware of. It's almost like we're scratching the tip of the iceberg, and there's a lot more to come in this regard, and we're excited to see it come down the pike. Jennifer, Reese, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Jennifer Patterson is the Manager of Business Investment and Sector Development with the City of Hamilton, and Reese Morgan, the Executive Director of the Industry Education Council of Hamilton. Tomorrow at this time, we're going to focus on community partnerships and how they impact and affect workforce development. Uh, uh, number one, they have a huge impact. That is for sure. We'll hear how coming up tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.